All right, so let's dive in a little bit. Um, the name of this group is obviously Monthly Dose of Grace. Um, unfortunately, tonight is going to be more of a monthly dose of cold, harsh reality than grace. Uh, we have to kind of be honest about that. We'll throw in a little grace, hopefully, at the end. Um, we want to end on at least a, a positive note. But if I had to characterize the mood of this, it'd be more, closer to doom and gloom toward than, you know, happy running through a field. Um, and obviously, I'm going to talk a lot extensively about our recent scandals and begin at least by talking a little bit kind of about a bit of a view from 36,000 feet, putting in a perspective of, of the last 50 years in general. Um, but I, th- I think it's important that you hear your priests talk candidly about this. Um, I think that's an important thing. Um, it's, it's important that we once in a while talk and take stock of where we are in the world and some of the ways that we as human beings fall short of being uh, the people that God calls us to be. We often think of the church as a family, and you know, in any family, you've got some difficult things to talk about. You know, you know family secrets or just you know, awkward conversations. And you know, maybe it's not the greatest thing to bring that up at every single dinner, but eventually you've got to bring it up at some point. It does no good to th- just throw those things under the rug. Uh, that's the case in any family, and that should be the case in any parish family, and that should be, definitely be the case in the church. They need addressing sometimes. They need to be brought out into the open. So, to begin by just kind of looking at, again, a view from about 36,000 feet, looking at what we're dealing with and how we got here. Again, sort of putting the recent abuse scandals in a bit of a larger context to begin. We can look at the 1940s and the 1950s, Uh, particularly in the Church of the United States, as the height of American Catholicism and the height of cultural Catholicism in America. That was probably when Catholicism in the United States was at its height. Um, It was also the time right after World War II, which is a very interesting time in American life. Because for about 20 years-ish, Americans really, really latched on to large communities to large institutions. Trust in government was at its highest levels that it has really ever been in terms of polling data, in the history of polling data. Right after World War II, uh, Americans latched themselves onto big communities and big groups. Things like you know, the Lions Club, the Elks, the Knights of Columbus, even country clubs. Uh, and churches were a big part of that. People wanted to be part of a big community. Uh, you know, it was the aftermath of World War II. We were the world's remaining superpower. And you know, it, it was generally prosperous times, and people really, really wanted to latch on to big communities. Uh, and it was, this is a unique time in American history, because for the most part, Americans distrust big communities. And for the most part, Americans distrust big institutions. Um, but again, this time was a little bit different. It stuck out. Uh, the church was seen in very high regard uh, in, in American culture. Previously, maybe for about 100 years, we had been an immigrant church. You know, a lot of people coming over from Ireland and Germany and Italy uh, and had not, it taken a while for Catholics to integrate into American life. But by the 1940s and 50s, we had made it, quote unquote. We had been integrated into American culture. We were no longer an immigrant church. We had made it. You know, again, certain you know, outlier things notwithstanding, generally American Catholics had made it. We were part of American culture. Um, this can be seen in you know, even like a bunch of movies. That came out during that time. Everything from the Bells of St. Mary's, Going My Own Way, even the classic On the Waterfront. All of them portraying Catholic life in a very idealistic way, and especially the priest. Uh, portrayed in a very positive light. 
You know, this, is, this is part of who we are as Americans. So we're religious people, and we love to go to our churches and be with other people, and we see Father you know, in very high regard. The church was a very trusted voice, especially during these times. Uh, it was trusted by American Catholics and respected, at least, uh, among others. But the pendulum swung back in two specific ways. Maybe we could say two specific events. Vietnam and Watergate. Those are the two things that completely swung the pendulum back toward a distrust of large institutions, especially government. Those were the two events where everybody really lost faith that the government was looking out for them and that the government could be trusted. And this extended into other big institutions as well. Ever since you know, the 60s or 70s, membership in large institutions like that have, have gone down. The country club memberships have gone down. Lions Club, Elks Club, all those things. Their membership has gradually gone down uh, since that time. Because Americans, again, didn't want to be involved in a large institution thinking that it wasn't trustworthy and that it could possibly fail. Uh, there was a great le- uh, a lack of community life that has extended even today. Uh, there's a recent book, I forget the author, but it's called Bowling Alone. And it talks about uh, kind of the, so- uh, the sociological development of this in America. Um, you have more people that want to go bowling than ever before, but less people in bowling leagues than ever before. People would rather bowl alone than with other people. Um, so again, that's kind of a sociological development that we've seen in the last 50 years. Um, and so that, again, that all began in the 60s and, and it's gradually continued to now. Um, and all of this sort of happened right around the time of the Second Vatican Council, um, which you know, at the time was seen as we need to open up the windows to the church, which, which was good. It was needed. The problem was maybe the air outside wasn't the greatest in, in different points. That sort of got in. And so even in the church, it sort of turned into this attitude of rebellion in many ways against the institution. Again, you have the prevailing mor- the cultural mores, you know, going against large institutions and not trusting them, kind of being extended into the church as well. Uh, we have the rebellion to the encyclical Humanae Vitae on, on birth control and even rebellion against church teaching in general. And there was a lot of confusion in the years after the council. Generally in the church's history, there have been 23 ecumenical councils. And each of them, it takes about 50 to 100 years to fully implement, to fully like, understand what it was about and how to implement it well. Uh, and we're, we're at about 50 years right now. Um, so again, in the immediate years after every council, there's always a little bit of confusion as to what that council really, really wants. But anyway, kind of back to the overall trends. You have young people becoming spiritual but not religious, wanting to have a relationship with God but outside of the institution of the church. Again, that, that's sort of the phenomenon that we have seen. There's a massive decline in mass attendance, um, people virtually abandoning the sacrament of confession. Uh, that you know, Confession numbers have probably gone down even more than mass attendance. Um, a lot of bad catechesis. I know for a lot of people, their Catholic education consisted of coloring, crossword puzzles, and reflection papers. Uh, that was the case for me at various points throughout uh, my, my upbringing in the Catholic faith. Um, a lot of people went into adulthood not knowing their faith on an intellectual level uh, that people of previous generations had had. Um, and as far as some of the other statistics, you know, we've heard them all before. Lack of vocations. You know, ordinations to the priesthood are down 33% since they reached a height in 1970, and that's uh, not counting the people that have left the priesthood itself. Uh, so that number, you could say, is a little bit small. Uh, the lack of marriages, this is a big one, down 67%. Uh, marriages in the church have gone down by two-thirds, double the rate of priestly ordinations. Uh, You've got a lot of people who aren't getting married anymore or just getting married outside the church. 
you know, at a, at a barn or, you know, near, near a lake or things like that. Um, and a lack of baptisms. Baptisms are down by, by about 33% since, uh, since 1970. And even here at Cottleville, they're down a little bit more, too. Um, so we're not, we're, no one's immune to this. This is, this is really just a general trend all throughout the country. Um, so what's been the response? Well, due to a decline in Catholicism, you have a lot of parish closures. You know, a lot of dioceses have gone through parish closures. In St. Louis, we're probably going to have to go through another round, I'd say, within the next five to ten years. Um, we're going to lose uh, 50 pastors to retirement in the next ten years. We have a lot of priests that are around Monsignor's age. Uh, a lot of guys around that time who are going to be retiring. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, my class and the, the class that just got ordained, the last two years we've ordained six guys, but 19 priests have died. Um, so... Again, we're, we're not counting the very large classes that are going to be going up for retirement within the next five to ten years. Uh, we have not seen, by far, the worst of the priest shortage yet here in St. Louis. Uh, that, the worst is yet to come, as far as that. So it would not surprise me at all uh, if there is another round of parish closures, again, within the next five to ten years. Probably it will be our next Archbishop, because uh, Archbishop Carlson will hit retirement age in about a year or two. Um, I know the Diocese of Pittsburgh... A very radical plan that took their parishes down from 188 down to 57. Now, that, that's, that's one extreme. Um, but you know, we have about 175 parishes right now. would not surprise me if we closed 50 or more. Um, it won't affect us. So we're, we're pretty well insulated from that, at least for a while. But um, this, is, this is reality, unfortunately, uh, what, we're gonna, what we're going to be dealing with. Um, and you can also just look at the overall culture you know, that, we are, that we are in. Uh, culture that is increasingly antithetical or at least uh, you know, opposed to or at odds with Catholicism. You can just look at the last couple of weeks. My gosh, um, you know, everything from people getting asked about their membership in the Knights of Columbus, in judicial uh, hearings, you know, to a, a lot of things. Um, it's, it's, it's a culture that is, again, increasingly not friendly to Catholicism. Uh, you can look at everything, you know. Pretty much any issue you want, and in many ways the church is extremely countercultural. Um, probably primarily most would be the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Uh, we can't deny that the cultural trends on that issue are going against us. You know, the, the polling data shows that approval for same-sex marriage is the highest among millennials and younger people. It starts highest there and gradually gets lower as people get older. So if you can imagine as generations get older, you know, it's only going to be tougher on a lot of these issues, that one in particular. And then overall, even within the church, there's, you know, a, a, you know those years of rebellion, you could say, have kind of created a lot of confusion uh, among a lot of people. Um, a lot of mixed messages, a lack of coherence, and a lack of clarity sometimes. Um, you know, it, it, it can be hard, you know, to know what exactly the church teaches. There can be, you know, airplane press conferences by the Pope where we can like, okay, what, what, what is he saying sometimes? Um, some of those haven't exactly made my job easier, but, uh, but you know, we, we, have to, we have to be clear. We have to be coherent in what we teach. Um, that certainly makes the gospel more effective, uh, and we need that in, you know, at every level of the church. Um, and if we think it's bad here, it's even worse in Europe. Um, I know of a, a priest in Germany who said he hears confessions maybe a couple times a year. That's it. Um, the entire country of Ireland has only 20 seminarians for the entire country. You can imagine Ireland sending so many priests to America back in the day. Uh, the entire country of Ireland has only 20 seminarians. We have more seminarians in the Archdiocese of St. Louis 
in the entire country of Ireland. So, in the wake of that giant poop sandwich, we are faced <laughs> with scandal on top of all of that, uh, beginning in 2002. And if we look at you know, the context of everything that had sort of happened before, we see it had all the right ingredients for a very significant exodus uh, or a very significant event. You know, it, was, it was a big institution that was failing, a big institution that was not trustworthy, an institution that many people already disagreed with, um, and in many people who should have known better within that institution. You know, all of the ingredients for a very, very big scandal. 2002 and everything that accompanied it uh, shattered the good image that many people had grown up with in the church. Cultural Catholicism, we could say, died in 2002 with the first wave of scandals. Uh, we, most of us know the story. It was originally some reporters from the Boston Globe uh, who found a number of cases of degenerate clergy, including some major pedophiles. And, but the bigger story for that was that they found that the church had known for decades about these guys. And... Uh, they got confirmation from lawyers and other sources that the church had settled hundreds of lawsuits uh, going back many, many decades against dozens of priests of abuse. And it was a huge story. They won a Pulitzer Prize for their work, and rightly so. Uh, and, of course, you know, many people were brave enough to come forward in Boston. They, were, they emboldened others all around the country to come forward with their stories. And so the, you know, the scandal, as we just always call it, it spread to other places all around the country and even around the world. Uh, many priests were removed from ministry, uh, at least in Boston in the beginning, in, beginning in Boston and continuing to other places. Uh, many a number of priests were arrested, at least the ones that were within the statute of limitations were. Uh, and the Archbishop of Washington at the time, Cardinal Bernard Law, uh, was resigned and uh, reassigned to the Vatican. He was essentially given a desk job, but one that was on paper uh, a promotion. It was a, a demotion by promotion type of thing. Uh, and... You know, that, that was not, very, not a very good way to deal uh, with that problem. It was something that, you know, we also have to keep in mind, Pope John Paul II was a very, very old man at this time. Uh, he was suffering from Parkinson's, and most of the administrative work of the church was being delegated to other people. Um, as, as bad as it sounds, it didn't help that in many ways the Pope was incapacitated in being able to deal effectively uh, with this problem. So again, a lot of people came forward. Many, many brave, brave, heroic people who recounted their stories. And what gradually happened was dioceses began to remove priests uh, as allegations came to light. People who said, oh, 30 years ago, Father did this to me. Uh, and then that priest was removed. Uh, and it, it was constant. It seemed like every day almost there was another story of another priest getting removed from somewhere, you know, for, from various places. And it was the case everywhere around the entire country. Uh, it was often called the Long Lent of 2002, because uh, you know, it all started in January, and by the time of Lent, it was in full swing. Uh, and it was a very, very difficult time. And as I said, all those old movies and all of those wonderful ideals about Catholicism were essentially gone. You know, people became very, very embarrassed to be known as a Catholic. And many priests were uh, finding it very difficult to walk uh, in the public uh, wearing their clerics. Uh, the image of the priest was certainly shattered, and as I mentioned, the, the ideals of cultural Catholicism were were gone. So in response to that, that summer, uh, the United States bishops, the USCCB, uh, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, ha held their annual meeting in Dallas. And uh, that was the only item on the agenda of how we're going to deal with this issue of clerical sex abuse. Um, 
And based on the results of it and what they did, it, it seemed like it centered more on preventing future abuse uh, rather than uncovering what was in the past. Because it's two elements to it, really. To prevent future abuse, to create safe environments, but also to be able to go through the church's books, essentially, and look back through this and say, where can we improve? And also, who, was, who did this and who knew what and when? Uh, so they, they crafted what's called the Charter for the Protection of Young People, also better known as the Dallas Charter. Uh, it, it's pretty much that's the name that everyone refers to it as. And there's a lot of policies that we're all familiar with. If any of us has to do any volunteer work in the church, you know, we have to go through a lot of these things. Background checks for each and every parish employee, volunteer, and coach. Uh, the Dallas Charter created what are essentially called diocesan review boards in every diocese. If a diocese was too small to have one, they had to go in with another diocese and have one that worked for both. And essentially, it was, a, it was a group of lay professionals, whether it was um, you know, social workers, psychologists, former prosecutors, uh, law enforcement officers, uh, all, all kinds of different people uh, who had expertise in some way, shape, or form uh, in the area of sexual abuse. And their job was, if any allegation was brought to the archdiocese, it would go to that board. They would review it, determine whether or not uh, the allegation was credible. I'll get to what that means in a second. They would review the allegations. And if the, if the allegation was credible, regardless of the legal status of the person, because again, a lot of these cases were past the statute of limitations, so people couldn't be you know, charged with any of these things. So regardless of the legal status, if the allegation was deemed credible, that person was removed from ministry. You know, zero tolerance. Um, that, that's what the policy said. Uh, put in policy place to tell law enforcement any time that there is an allegation. Uh, and if there is an allegation that's received, uh, the priest is automatically removed, at least temporarily, pending any legal action. Um, the side note is that in, in some cases, you could say that, um, that it's guilty until proven innocent, but in my opinion, that's necessary. Um, no system is going to be perfect when it comes to reporting and removing priests. Um, I know of four guys off the top of my head that have been falsely accused. They've been proven that they did not happen. Uh, and those four guys went through hell. Um, but I, I feel it's necessary. I mean, because you know, no system is going to be perfect to be able to protect both the rights of the accused and the accuser. Um, but it, it was something that was necessary in order to at least make sure that we were doing things right and being cautious when the safety of our children was definitely at stake. Um, everyone had, you know, has to go through safe environment training, protecting God's children. That was necessary for everyone. Um, new policies in place, no one-on-one -on -one meetings with youth. Uh, pretty much every door in every parish office had to now have a window. Uh, there were priests that were complaining like, oh, I, my parish office is a century old. You tell me I got to put a window in a century old door. Yes, you do. Um, those things were put in place. You know, no driving with youth one-on-one. -on -one. You can have another kid in there. You can have another adult. No one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and basically, yeah, no one-on-one no -on -one contact with a youth where an adult can't at least be present or within earshot or someone at least can't come in and see you. And then gradually over the years, sense of additional policies have been added for things like social media, things that weren't around in 2002, dealing with electronic communication and things like that. And when these policies have been followed, they've worked. When these policies have been followed, they have worked. The, the recent report from Pennsylvania was rather glowing in its assessment of when, how allegations were handled pre-2002 versus post-2002. The report itself said that tremendous progress was made in 2002. 
that again, when those policies were followed, they did their job. And people were removed that needed to be removed. And thankfully, the people that, the couple people that were falsely accused have at least been able to come back and minister, albeit going through a very, very difficult process. But the Pennsylvania report even commended the steps that the church has taken. Again, when these policies have been followed, there have been some unfortunate examples of a few bishops who didn't follow these policies very well, and they're rightfully paying the price. But when these policies have been followed, uh, they've worked. So what do we see the, the effects of 2002, at least in that moment? A massive loss of faith among a lot of people. A number of dioceses declared bankruptcy uh, in order to deal with all the lawsuits. Um, vocations to the priesthood plummeted. Many guys left the seminary just thinking, I, I could never be a priest in this, in this time. Uh, and trust in the church reached an all-time low. Uh, because many people were not, I mean, obviously people were upset about the abuse itself, but more people were upset about the cover-up, and rightly so. It's, what's the line? The cover-up is worse than the crime itself. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie Spotlight? Every one of you should see it. It's a good movie. Um, but I, I think it's, it's an absolutely necessary thing that every Catholic who's grown up post-2002 should watch. I think it's a very balanced take on it. Um, it's, mostly a, it's mostly a story about the journalists. Um, but I think, it's a, you know, I, I think it's a very, very important thing for Catholics to watch nowadays, to know what we've gone through as a church and, what pe- and how upset people were uh, when, when they discovered these things. And in the movie Spotlight, uh, in the middle of the movie, the, the reporters are going to their editor, and they're, they're going to run the story. And basically, would say, yeah, we, we found 15 degenerate clergy in Boston. We found, we found 15 guys. And the editor said, you know, great work, but that's not the story. He said, you know, the, the bigger story is the institutional response, you know, and the cover-up that was associated with it. And the more they dug on that, the more they found other priests, and the more they determined that, yeah, the, the archdiocese had known about these guys for a number of years. And that was a much more impactful story than merely just having you know, 15 degenerate clergy. And that's proved prophetically true, uh, especially into today. So kind of fast forward to this past summer. Uh, the, the report out of Pennsylvania was six of the eight dioceses that the attorney general looked at. Um, and the main thing that that report showed, and they, they, they mentioned it in the report, it really did not show any, for, for what I like to call, new abuse uh, in the sense that you know, they're, they're, it's not like they uncovered people that, you know, that were still serving in ministry uh, that, that had abused people. There were maybe one or two of the 300 or so that they had mentioned, and those people were, were immediately removed. Um, you, you can take those 300 names and Google all of them, and you can go back to the news articles from 2002, 2003, 2004, when there was an allegation brought and the archdiocese removed them, or either they, they, they removed them from the ministry or this person was already deceased. So with Pennsylvania, we, the, the big misconception is that there were 300 priests that were still out there in ministry that had done all this. That's not true. What it did find, what it did find was basically looking through the, arch, the diocese's files and determining how long before 2002 that they knew about these allegations. That's what they found. Again, you could Google all of these names and the news articles. Oh, yeah, this person was removed 2004, 2003. But what the, the attorney general's investigation showed was that there might have been an allegation back in the 90s that was ignored or an allegation in the 80s or the 70s that was ignored. That's what the Pennsylvania report found. That was the big you know, reveal about that was how much dioceses had known about these guys before they had been removed. Um, that's what the Pennsylvania report uh, discovered. And people already knew these guys' names, 
Uh, they just didn't know how much the church had, had covered them up over the decades and the times that maybe some of these instances of abuse could have been prevented uh, decades earlier. And it's not as if the survivors hadn't said anything since 2002. They had, in fact, repeatedly. Uh, they were just ignored or the church had covered up. And that was why people were so upset uh, with the wake of Pennsylvania. Again, it wasn't as if there were 300 guys that were still out there. It was that, okay, all these guys, you knew about them for decades before. And nobody had really gone through the trouble of looking through dioceses' files and seeing you know, how this could have been prevented a long time ago. You know, in this report, they saw the extent of the cover-up from all those years ago. And they saw how people knew about these abusers and how they had done nothing. So that was kind of the, the Pennsylvania element uh, to all of this. The other element uh, concerns bishops, uh, and it's opens up another front in addition to Pennsylvania, the case of now former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, uh, probably one of the most powerful American churchmen of the last century uh, in terms of serving prominent, prominent posts and just having, uh, wielding a good deal of authority, at least in Rome. Uh, he was Bishop of Metuchen, that's in central New Jersey, then being Archbishop of Newark, and then moving to D.C. and being made a Cardinal. Um, and uh, Cardinal McCarrick's case, uh, generally speaking, you could maybe compare it more toward uh, like a Harvey Weinstein-esque type of a situation. Uh, it, his victims were unfortunately seminarians and younger priests, mostly. Uh, his was much more of an abuse of power uh, as a bishop with his seminarians uh, than a lot of these other cases were. Um, and it, it's unfortunate because there were a lot of people who knew about it. And a lot of people knew about it, and they weren't physically able to do anything about it. I'll give you an example. I had a, a priest friend of mine uh, who was a seminarian in Rome in the 90s. Uh, I mean, these guys were seminarians, so you were, there, were very, there were a few people more powerless in the church than seminarians. It's true, because your vocation director and your bishop hold all the cards for you. You mess up, they can kick you out. Um, so you're, you're, you're in a very vulnerable position. In that case, he was a seminarian in Rome in the 90s, and the word over there was don't get into an elevator with Ted McCarrick. Uh, That was what they all knew. Again, these were guys that could not say a word because if they spoke up, McCarrick was a prominent enough guy, he could have gotten kicked out of the seminary like that. Uh, They just were not in a position to be able to make any changes, unfortunately. Um, And uh, so anyway, Cardinal McCarrick, he was removed from public ministry over the summer uh, because of an allegation that did involve a minor. Um, it was a 16-year-old. Uh, and McCarrick was already retired, at least. Uh, but he was still doing a lot of globetrotting on behalf of the church and uh, trying to at least promote the work of the church, uh, in theory. Um, but he, w- he was removed from public ministry, uh, and he was eventually removed from the College of Cardinals itself. He's currently living at a monastery in Kansas. It's basically an infirmary uh, for religious priests who are under very strict supervision, mostly because of health reasons. I believe he's got a pacemaker, and he's had at least both of his legs re- uh, knees replaced. But... Uh, it's, for, it's mostly for people who are not going to be able to get out of there uh, because it's an infirmary, essentially, essentially a nursing home. And as of now, uh, waiting on uh, a trial at least uh, to look at the allegations of possibly remove him from the clerical state or laicize him. Uh, the word at least is Rome wants to get it done before the big meeting in February uh, regarding, regarding child sex abuse. Uh, so look for that shoe to drop uh, in the next couple weeks. Um, of the, the trial itself for uh, former Cardinal McCarrick. And the McCarrick angle, I think, is significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of which, his previous diocese, this Matuchin and Newark, had settled civil lawsuits against two different accusers in 2005 and in 2007. They had settled civil lawsuits 
Uh, again, these involved adults, so not exactly criminal when it comes, you know, compared at least to, to with minors. Um, but his previous diocese had settled two civil lawsuits against adults. Both were men. And if McCarrick was a priest in those dioceses, that would have warranted immediate removal from ministry under the Dallas Charter. Any, anybody that's got an allegation against him, especially one that you have to settle a lawsuit, would immediately be removed. And bishops do that. Bishops do that. If you have an allegation against you that it's, you know, that, that it's serious enough, that it even, that's going to go to trial for, for a, you know, in a civil judgment, you're dismissed. But his previous bishops had settled lawsuits against him and hadn't said a word. And this was all revealed when, when he was initially, uh, this allegation involving a minor. Uh, again, if he was a priest, it would have warranted immediate removal from ministry. But interestingly, that Dallas charter I talked about doesn't apply to bishops. It only applies to priests. It's a complicated reason as to why. Um, canon law at least stipulates that only a bishop can dis- the po- only the pope can discipline a bishop. And as weird as it sounds, I'm sympathetic to that because it would be like saying you know the governor of Missouri could discipline and remove the United States Secretary of State. Um, we have to have right ecclesiology, and it should be the pope that's the one that disciplines a bishop. It shouldn't just be from the ground up. Um, that has to be the case. Um, now they they pulled a fast one in 2002, and they made it very convenient because again, McCarrick was one of the people that was prominent bishop at the time and helped write that policy. Again, very convenient for him. Um, but yeah, the Dallas Charter technically does not apply to bishops. There's no procedure in place you know, if a bishop were to do that. So in theory, they weren't breaking any rules uh, in that regard. But it also meant that there were bishops, you know, the, the people in Matuchin and Newark who had settled these lawsuits, who knew about McCarrick but did not reveal it to the public. And the bishops in Newark, Matuchin, and then recently, as we found out, Cardinal Whirl in D.C. knew about it for many, many years. And it also came to light that many people had tried to warn various officials in Rome about Cardinal McCarrick, going back to the year 2000, when a priest wrote to the Vatican, and at least, at least got up to some people in there, people at the Congregation of Bishops, that they knew about it. Um, so that, that's at least the, the, uh, the McCarrick angle. And then later this summer, at least the, uh, the testimony of, of Archbishop Vigano, uh, basically his former Vatican ambassador to the United States, uh, making a number of different claims. Uh, the most prominent among them was that he claimed that uh, Pope Benedict XVI had sanctioned McCarrick in some way, uh, knowing of these allegations against adults, uh, and basically told him, you need to stay out of the public eye, you need to you know, not really do anything public you know, for the church. Uh, but Vigano alleged that Pope Francis had known about this misconduct. Uh, he didn't mention that Pope Francis knew about the abuse of minors, only his misconduct with adults. That, that stipulation needs to be made. Uh, but he alleged that Pope Francis had basically allowed him to continue globetrotting on behalf of various church-related causes. Um, a number of his claims have yet to be addressed, have yet to be officially verified. Um, so we have to consider them at least allegations at this point. Um, and, but certainly there are many serious questions that, that he raises. Uh, and anyone in his position who would have known about those things and raises those questions deserves a hearing uh, and deserves to at least have those questions looked into very thoroughly. Um, yeah, very serious questions. Basically, you know, who knew what about McCarrick and when? 
Because uh, clearly many bishops were ignoring their own policies when it comes to the Dallas Charter uh, on behalf of one of their own. You know, they ignored it when it came to Cardinal McCarrick. Um, and it really shouldn't matter the intention of the one asking the question you know, of who knew what and when. Obviously, Archbishop Vigano asked Pope Francis to resign and, and whatnot. But again, it, it shouldn't matter the intention or at least the motive of the one asking the question. You know, the question is still there. Who knew what and when? And that, that question, unfortunately, has not uh, been answered fully uh, at this juncture. Uh, so that, that is something that at least remains an open case uh, and one that as a church we very much need to know. Uh, and really that's kind of the bigger story here on McCarrick. Just like it was in Spotlight, it's about who knew what and when. You know, whatever punishment they might inflict on him, you know, removing him from the clerical state, you know, all, all, any new policies that the church could create to hold bishops accountable, they really won't do anything to answer that fundamental question of who knew what and when. And really, that's the question that we need to keep asking. Um, right now, I would say the people doing the best job of that are, are some journalists, um, mostly people writing on the Internet who at least are devoting a lot of time and energy toward investigating and you know, running down little angles to various things. Um, you know, those are the people right now that are probably in the best position to be able to do some, some digging on that question of who knew what and when. It's a very significant one. Um, because we, we can't just work on preventing new abuse. Obviously, that's necessary, again, but there's, there's two sides to it. We, all, we have to create safe environments, which, again, even the Pennsylvania report said that we're doing when we're following those policies. Uh, but we also have to very honestly, candidly, and bluntly go back and see who knew what and when and how we got to this position in the first place. Um, and, we see, and we have to see to it that those who you know, did cover it up no longer are positions of authority in the church. Uh, you know, obviously those who did the abuse should not be in the priesthood in general, but those who did the covering up should not be in positions of authority. Um, so it's leading up to uh, the big meeting later this month. Uh, it'll be the Pope and some people at the Vatican and basically all the heads of the Episcopal conferences. So the head of the U.S. bishops, the Canadian bishops, all the heads of various national bishop conferences uh, coming to Rome, uh, converging in Rome for a meeting. And honestly, I don't have a lot of, of high expectations for it. Um, and kind of going back to that, that issue of canon law, uh, and, you know, because the USCCB technically has no authority. It has no authority whatsoever. It's sort of just a get-together body to talk and write documents to encourage Catholics to do various things. Um, the church could, in theory, give individual countries the power to discipline bishops, but I think it also has its drawbacks. Because uh, what the American bishops wanted to do back in uh, November was to essentially, because every diocese has a review board, they wanted to create a national review board for bishops. Any allegations regarding bishops, they wanted to create a national review board. And for our church, it would have been very practical, um, I think. But again, the USCCB doesn't have any authority, and it has its drawbacks in this particular way. We are not a regional church. Uh, we're, we're, we're one church, and it all, it all pivots back to Rome. And there are many people who wants to turn us into a regional church so that they can change doctrine by region. You know, this goes back to the, the, the argument on uh, communion for the divorce and remarried from a couple of years ago. The Germans wanted to say, oh, we'll have it in Germany. We'll let the, the, the Polish bishops do whatever they want. We want to do what we want in Germany. They wanted to you know, dissect the church into various regions, essentially, and allow each region to make their own policies with regards to pretty much everything. And that's not Catholic. It's more Anglican than Catholic. Um, 
And even something as this, even something that might be work practically as giving national bishops authorities, bishops conferences authority, it could very easily devolve into that. Because many of those people who would want to make it regional would take advantage of it. Um, so I think that's a very practical yes, but in a sense dangerous because of where it could lead. Ecclesi- ecclesially, you know, just as far as who we are as a church and the, the relationships that exist between local churches in Rome. Um, or the church could do, you know, in theory, some type of universal policies um, all around the world. Um, but that could also have its drawbacks as well. Uh, it, could, it, could have, it could not have a lot of teeth. Because we also, to be honest, see, right now the American church is probably best prepared to handle something and staff a, you know, a review board or something like that. Other countries might not. You know, you look at places, more far-flung areas of the world, Southeast Asia, Africa, Central America. It could be hard to find an expert when it comes to the psychology of sexual abuse. You know, a lot of other places in the world don't have the resources to be able to staff these things like we do in America. We're very blessed in that regard to have so many experts on hand to call on to help us out. Uh, But other parts of the world, they're not so lucky because they don't have the infrastructure you know, the expertise in this field uh, to be able to do it on their own. So if you do something universal, the worry is that it could just become the least common denominator. And that's not good enough for us, especially here in the United States. It's not good enough for anybody. Um, so there's not a lot of easy solutions to this. The main thing that I think everybody wants out of this is some type of accountability for bishops when they are either have allegations directly against them or if they cover it up. That's the one level of this that's sort of escaped accountability. Because really, you can look at Cardinal Law, maybe Bishop Finn in Kansas City as the only really two people in the American church that have had to resign because of cover-up. You know, it's only been those two. Other bishops have had allegations of abuse against them. But the only two people that have really had to resign because of cover-up would be Cardinal Law in Boston and Bishop Finn in Kansas City. Uh, And that's a level of accountability that, that needs to grow. Uh, that people, again, people who cover this up don't belong in positions of authority uh, in the church. And then the, the honest to God truth is there doesn't seem at least to be an, a lot of appetite among bishops and high-ranking people of, you know, as far as who knew what and when, because it could potentially compromise a lot of people. And generally, people don't like to put in policies that they can't meet on their own. It's human nature, unfortunately. Um, so, again, I, I don't have a great deal of expectations. Uh, I'd like to be surprised, but... Uh, there's not a lot of easy solutions to it, and I'm not an expert in canon law. I've talked with a couple of guys and spitballed some solutions with them, but nothing that certainly they're not going to listen to us. Um, so what are some things we can do? What are some practical things we can do? I, I think we've got four things. The first of which, all of these scandals show us the need uh, to pray for holy priests. I can tell you that uh, especially the younger clergy are, are as sick and tired of all of this as you are. Um, we, we are very, very blessed with a good seminary here in, in St. Louis. On, the, on a whole, the American seminary system has gotten much, much better in the last 20 years or so. Um, you, you could honestly say that you know, back in the day in you know, like the 70s, you could literally knock on the door of the seminary and say, I feel the call, and they'd let you in. Um, it's not so easy now. Uh, I had to get full psychological evaluation from an independent psychologist, behavioral evaluation, full background check, um, multiple interviews with different people. Uh, It is much more of an arduous process 
to enter seminary. And even inside the seminary system, uh, it's gotten, gotten much, much better. Um, my aunt, uh, she would often just go to the seminary and hang out with the seminarians in the 80s. Uh, and, she, and she's like, oh, I, I could give you some stories <laughs> about, about what, what happened there and just some of the terrible behavior and terrible conduct that was there. Um, she said it, it didn't resemble a seminary all that much, to be honest. Um, that has changed, and I can assure you that from my own experience. Uh, that any type of behavior uh, that's contrary to any of the commandments, uh, we're talking about the sixth mostly tonight, um, is not tolerated in seminary, and it's grounds for removal at any time. Um, and there are many people that take that very, very seriously. We, we literally have a former prosecutor who's running our seminary, Father Jim Mason. Uh, he's, a, he's a former prosecutor up in, up in Minnesota. So uh, you can rest assured on that one. Um, but yeah, we, we have to honestly pray for, for good and holy priests uh, and pray that um, the priests that we have can be, can be holy. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very important thing. You know, many times as the priest goes, so goes the parish in terms of holiness and zeal. Um, but I also have to, we have to honestly say that you know, I, I don't think a lot of guys went into the priesthood thinking, I, I want to be corrupt. You know, I, I don't think that happens. I'm talking more on the cover-up as opposed, as opposed to abuse itself. Um, that happens over time. Satan can gradually erode our good intentions and take away you know, our, our, our goodwill, uh, leaving behind corruption and decay. And as idealistic as I know a lot of us young guys are, uh, I'm not naive to think that we aren't capable of being as morally bankrupt as some of those bishops who covered that up in the past. We're all human beings. Each and every one of us is capable uh, of committing sin. Uh, so we need to pray for holiness among our priests. Second thing we need to do uh, is pray in reparation. Uh, reparation is a lost art in the church. Uh, it, it goes along the lines with uh, our second reading from today, actually. You know, that we are united as members of the body of Christ. And when one member of the body of Christ commits a great evil, we, it's, you know, it sort of reflects on the rest of us a little bit. We're all affected by it. And so it is us asking God to repair the wound to the body of Christ that one of our own has inflicted. Uh, we, and it's, it's solidarity with other members of the body of Christ uh, who want God to help cleanse his church you know, from whatever evil it might be that day. Um, and we need to do this, especially uh, for the sins of the clergy. It's something I do uh, almost every day. I talked with uh, Sharon, a lady who runs our, uh, our adoration chapel. I may be doing like a monthly uh, First Friday Holy Hour for priests, but also throwing in some prayers of reparation uh, for the sins of the clergy. I think that's really, really important that we as a parish continue to pray in reparation, asking God to have mercy on his church uh, for, for the sins that the church has, uh, that members of the church uh, have inflicted on others. Uh, to pray for the survivors um, of, of this abuse, um, many of whom go through a pain that I could never imagine. Um, it, it, it should go along, praying for holy priests, but also praying in reparation. So that's another thing. Third thing I think we can do. Uh, we need our dioceses to release uh, the names of everyone that's ever had a credible allegation against them. Um, most of the time, if you know, an allegation is brought forth against a priest that's you know, no longer in ministry or deceased nowadays, uh, if the allegation is deemed credible, it goes through that process. Uh, this happened a couple times in my home parish in St. Ferdinand. Basically, what they would do is they would, there would be a letter from the archdiocese that would be put in the bulletin saying that you know, at your parish during these years, this priest served here. We have an allegation against him. They'll say whether or not it 
it was an allegation that was at that parish or at a different place. Is that, that's an important detail. Um, they'll mention that and they'll normally, they might even read it from the pulpit. I know they did that at least once. Um, but they, and they say on there, if anybody at this parish had any instances or any allegations to report against this priest, because you know, he would have been here, call the archdiocese, call law enforcement. Um, again, it, it's a little bit kind of a patchwork system, a little bit. Uh, there were a lot of people that, you know, in 2002 that were already deceased or had already left the priesthood um, that haven't at least had their names public in the sense that we can reach out to survivors who might have been hurt by these people. Um, a number of dioceses already have. Jefferson City uh, released their names back in November, and I know Springfield Cape is very close to releasing all of their names as well. Um, in St. Louis, uh, I was actually recently told that we're, we might be re- probably going to be releasing our names next month. Um, uh, so either next month or, or sometime in the near future, which, which is encouraging. Uh, I know right now we've got the, uh, the state attorney general going through our files um, you know, just to make sure that there isn't anybody still in ministry that we've overlooked. Um, so that, that's a process that's happening, although it, it was slightly delayed by uh, Attorney General Hawley going to the Senate and the transition going to, I believe, Eric Schmidt, who's the new attorney general. So th- that was slightly delayed because of electoral concerns, uh, but now that, that investigation is at least back, back up and running, uh, which, which is good. Um, and that, that's a step that needs to happen. Uh, that we as a diocese should, should not have any more secrets. Um, it's a painful process, for many people, you know, because especially those of you who've been around a long time, you know, if you if there's a name on there that you might recognize, it can be hard. Um, but it's a process that needs to happen. Uh, that we as a diocese come clean uh, of everyone that we have, you know, in our in our system that's ever been accused of abuse. Um, and going through those files is a very long process. Um, I know in the diocese of Omaha, uh, all of their priest records is going back to um, like pioneer days was 50 feet tall of paper. And a lot of those older records were written entirely in Latin. So they needed somebody to go through and translate all that. It's a very time-consuming process. Um, so it, it isn't just something you can do overnight in that regard. Um, you got you to go through a lot of paper. Um, so hopefully that is coming. And a number of religious orders have started to release their names as well. And again, when these names are released, we have to, again, look at it. Most of them... Are, all of them should already be either out of the priesthood, uh, you know, either removed from ministry or deceased. Um, that's, that's essentially what these names will be. Um, it, it'll be a bigger news story if somehow we overlook somebody that's in ministry. Uh, but when these names are released, if you look at the list and look through each one of them, it'll be you know, current status will be laicized or removed from ministry uh, or deceased. Uh, and, we, and just as a church, I think it's important to keep asking who knew what and when. You know, that, that's really going to clean the wound, not just put a Band-Aid on it. Uh, and that will also help get accountability for those who covered up this abuse. Again, that's kind of the second phase of it. The fourth uh, thing we need to do is we kind of have to get to the bottom of why this happened in the church. You know, wh- why is it that Catholic priests uh, fell victim or – fall victim to this, but engaged in this behavior um, – and generally, there's two camps that at least like to put their, their stamp on why this happened. The first camp would say that it's because of the all-male celibate priesthood. The second camp would say that it's homosexuality. I think both of those camps are, in, are way too simplistic. Uh, this, is a, this is a very nuanced, uh, very complex issue, a very complex problem. 
that isn't solved by making altruistic uh, labels, at least, on things. Uh, both of those things at least need to be looked at. So you know, for that first camp, ways that we're responding to that. You know, we're getting lay people and women involved, especially in our review boards. Um, Bishop Rice, who's a good friend of mine, he's down in Springfield, Cape Girardeau, he was telling me that he's got a bunch of ex-prosecutors and, and law enforcement folks that are on his board, uh, and, and one priest. You know, it's a, getting lay people involved, and women as well, uh, is an important way to look at how these things happen. Um, and only and a lot of people ask, you know, pose the question, at least regarding celibacy. My response is, marriage is not a cure for temptation against purity. You know, we all know this. I mean, I hear confessions, so. Um, I'm not saying on those things, but uh, I mean, ma- marriage is not a cure for temptation against purity. And, and to, to, to assert that marriage is the only thing preventing the abuse of a child is a mischaracterization of the problem and, and an oversimplification of its solutions. Because after all, marriage was not the cause of the twisted sexuality of Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Kevin Spacey, the whole, the whole list of everybody in the Me Too movement. Um, so, it, Overly simplistic. And then on, on, the, on the second camp, you, know, you could say that, yes, the vast majority of abuse was, was on other males. Uh, 81% of all victims were male. Uh, 62 thirds of all of those victims were boys ages 11 to 17. Um, so psychologically speaking, would not necessarily be, like a better word, pedophilia. That would be prepubescent. It was either uh, puberty or onward. Um, so that's something that needs to be looked at. Uh, it's not a one-to-one correlation uh, on any of these things, but it's something that should be examined. Uh, again, overly simplistic to just assert that it's just this or just this. Uh, that doesn't do anybody any good. We have to have an honest look at these things and go wherever the truth would lead. The truth doesn't discriminate. The truth doesn't care about offending anyone. The truth seeks the truth about why these things happen. And as far as the second issue, you know, probably the one that gets talked about more, um, I know there's a lot of perception among people that bishops have turned a blind eye to, to homosexuality in the clergy. You know, you know blogs uh, making rumors about subcultures and stuff, and it's a fair question. And we have to ask, and as a church, one of the bishops in November said, look, do we believe this or not? I hope we do. Um, but we, we have to act in our, on our beliefs and not just ignore them. Again, for me, we should have acted and been outraged over the fact that so many of these priests were unfaithful to celibacy, you know, to say nothing of hurting thousands of children. That's, that was the point where it became morally wrong for us. And beyond that, it became illegal. But the, when it became morally wrong, we didn't act. Uh, and we didn't even take our own rules seriously as a church in that regard. And I think that has to change. Uh, and again, seminary formation also plays a very big role in this. Uh, we need to make sure that our best priests are the ones that are running our seminaries uh, and making sure that the men that come out of the seminaries are well-equipped, that are psychosexually mature, um, and are able to deal with a lot of these things. Uh, and, and I can, again, assure you, I have 100% confidence uh, in what we're doing at Kenrick. In fact, Father Mason had a, uh, ran in, ran, literally ran into a, a survivor of priestly sex abuse uh, late summer and said, I want you to speak to our seminary. Uh, the man was very gracious and spoke to, to all the guys in formation said it was a very moving thing to hear uh, from, from this man who had suffered so much at the hands of priests. Um, yeah, I have very much, great deal of confidence in, in what we're doing in our seminary. So, back to monthly dose of grace. Where is the grace in all this? It's an honest question. Where is the grace in all this? I just listed off a laundry list of garbage. Where is the grace in this? How is any of this redemptive? How can we glean 
anything good from this. Well, as crazy as these times are, the church has also gone through similar time, similar difficulties before. Not saying on the same issue itself. Uh, But in the run-up to the Council of Trent in the late 1400s, early 1500s, the church was in absolute chaos. We often think that the main thing that the Council of Trent addressed was Protestantism and the various teachings that came out from Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. And that's true. There was a lot of doctrine. There was a lot of rebellion. And it was probably the greatest division uh, and secession from the church that we've had. But on top of all of that, the state of the clergy worldwide was in utter shambles. It was in utter shambles. You had open concubinage, illegitimate children, popes that were giving positions of power to family members. Um, it, It was awful. It was like house of cards, but in the church. And this wasn't in just one place. This was literally the entire world over. You had a way better chance of having a a bad priest in your local parish church than not. Uh, it affected at least more priests than these recent scandals have. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to compare the two here, obviously, but uh, the state of the clergy was, was awful. And it was the world over. Um, but into all of that, at that time, there was one young man who entered the picture. A man by the name of Charles Barmeo. He's a patron of our county. And he's got a very interesting story. He was made Cardinal Archbishop of Milan at the age of 18. It helps when your uncle is the Pope. (laughs) His uncle was the Pope. His mother was a Medici. So he had all kinds of connections. Charles Barmeo should have been part of the problem. He should have been. He had every reason to be part of the problem. But thankfully, he wasn't. He became part of the solution. He was, again, made Cardinal Archbishop of Milan. There were many people who tried to corrupt him and bribe him with various things. And he said no. The biggest thing that he did, that he's most well known for, is he founded the modern seminary system. He put all his priests in one place and he lived with them and he formed them himself. Because he wanted to make sure that they were good and holy men. Who could try to reform the church and give people holiness when, when they knew that they needed it most. Again, he should have been part of the problem but thankfully became part of the solution. He faced extreme opposition in his own diocese, especially from a lot of the rich people who were used to being able to pay off the church and get what they wanted. Um, He faced extreme opposition from a religious order in his diocese, even to the point of them trying to assassinate him. But thankfully he succeeded. He he turned his diocese around. It was a huge diocese. Milan, to this day, is the largest diocese in Europe in terms of people. He was able to reform the entire city of Milan. Again, from a man who should have been part of the problem, but thankfully was part of the solution. And that took time. It took about 50 to 100 years after Trent to right the ship. Again, it takes a little while after an ecumenical council to, to understand what it means and get everybody on the right track. Uh, and honestly, in this day and age, it might you know, take till most of these guys meet their eternal reward that we're able to finally cleanse and purge the church of these wounds. It's a realistic answer. Uh, And again, it makes seminary formation extremely important. We need strong bishops. And to pray for strong bishops and strong leaders are exactly what we need. You can see what happens when you get a good one. A lot of wonderful things can happen. We were blessed in St. Louis. uh, Cardinals Regalienberg cleaned up the seminary. I mean, cleaned it up. Before that, it was... 
Utter chaos. Bishop Rice said it resembled more of a country club than a seminary. Uh, they cleaned it up. Took time. Took about 10 years. But as, as we like to say, Regali got rid of the bad people, Burke brought in the good people. Uh, it took time to clean up the seminary, but it's worth it. And it's a beautiful thing to see many young men coming out of there, especially guys from our parish. Um, and we Catholics can also kind of often be seen as part of the problem sometimes too. You know, still sticking with a church that has its warts. You know, people ask us, why, why the hell are you still Catholic in the midst of all of this? Why are you? Well, I certainly hope, you know, that I can be part of the solution too. Not just in the church, but really in our world. The Catholic Church was really the first place to have a Me Too movement. You know, before everything that happened in the last couple of years. We have, we've made progress in creating safe environments. You know, case in point, when the Matt Lauer thing happened, the, the, you know, the bit came out that he had a button under his desk that he could lock the door uh, behind him. I, I literally heard that and my jaw dropped because like, okay, that, that is against this, this, this part of the Dallas Charter that's so wrong on so many levels uh, and that is totally not a safe environment. That mindset would not have been in the church you know, 20 years ago, but now it is. I mean, we all, I was talking with priest buddies and they're like, oh my gosh, if, if that was my office, I, I, would, I, like, I would not have, you know, so many bad things would have happened you know, if that had been my office that had that. And again, that mindset would not have been in the church 20 years ago, especially on the part of our priests. So thankfully, at least we hopefully have a better idea of what constitutes a safe environment and what isn't. Um, and I know that, again, as far as those policies, again, when the policies of the Dallas Charter, when they followed, have been very effective. You don't hear about this a lot. There have been a number of school districts and various organizations that have adopted those policies and asked the church, okay, what do you do to create a safe environment in, the, in, you know, in here and now? Again, when those policies are followed, they've been effective as far as creating a safe environment for our kids in our, in our churches and schools. But most importantly, I think we cannot be morally numb uh, to misconduct, whether it's adults and certainly with minors. We cannot be morally numb to sin in our church. We have to act when we see things are morally wrong, not just when they become illegal. We have to hold each other accountable, especially to the Ten Commandments. Somebody made a joke, those are the only policies we need and the ones to enforce we pray that God gives us good shepherds. As I said back in August, a shepherd in the flock of God is not a right. It's a privilege that carries with it the greatest responsibility this world has ever known. So we need shepherds. We need men after Christ's own heart. We need spiritual fathers and we need worthy leaders uh, to help bring the church to the perfection that Christ calls us to have. Thank you so much.